but we're coming to Y, evangelize. Never know whether to spell that kind of word with an S or a Z, and spell checks don't help me because it depends whether it's an American or it's an Australian or an English spell check, and I've got a Z today. Zs are undernourished, they need a little bit more practice, don't they? So you've got a Z on evangelise. One of the things that many Christians and many non-Christians agree about is that they don't like evangelism. Um, the non-Christians don't like it because it's done to them. The Christians don't like it because they don't like doing it to anybody. We don't like salespeople generally in our community. Uh, there's a certain group of people we don't like, politicians, journalists, salespeople, and we don't like pressure selling. We don't, want, we don't like people telling us what we need to do or what we should do or shouldn't do. And evangelism really is a call for people to repent. It really is the, you're going the wrong way, stop, turn around, go in a different direction. Your, your life is wrong. That's a pretty hard message to kind of say gently. You know, Have you ever contemplated the possibility that there is an alternative way in which you could live your life? Um, it really, once they've understood what you just said, it's an insult. They don't like it. And that's understandable. That's why very often it's when people's lives fall apart that they're more open and willing to listen to the gospel because they can see that it is going wrong. When in fact it was going wrong for years. It's just that the falling apart hadn't happened. Will the baby boomers wake up to God as they now approach death? I don't think so myself, but I hope and pray that they will because they've turned their back on God from the 1960s onwards and there's no great sign that they're turning back yet having made such damage to their own lives and the lives of their children and their grandchildren. But will they or not? I don't know. So when we talk about evangelism, uh, one of the questions that the Christian says is really, who should evangelise? Whose responsibility is it? Who should? Who must? Who has to? Is there a law in the scripture that says, is there an 11th commandment that says that I should do it? Because the question who really is the question who me? Uh, That's really the question that we're asking. Very few people are actually interested in the academic kind of intellectual discussion of who it is that should evangelise. When people ask the question of who it is that evangelise, they're really asking, I don't have to, do I? That's really what lies behind the who has to evangelise. Should it be just the gifted evangelists? Is it every Christian that has to? Is it just the ministers? Or is it really just the apostles? They're the evangelists. Or is it just missionaries? And if you've got a missionary call, you do evangelism. But the rest of us, well, we support them, we pray for them, we're involved with them, but uh, we don't have to do it. You see, I think the question really is wrong. It's a Pharisee's question. Pharisees ask questions to avoid the truth. They don't ask questions to find out the truth. They ask them to avoid. They know what the truth is. They're trying to find the loophole. They're trying to find the exclusion clause for them. And so really the question is not who should be evangelising, but why evangelise? Why should anybody evangelise? What is the motivation behind evangelism? Because if you understand that, then you may work out what you should or shouldn't, could or couldn't, may or may not be doing. If you understand the why of evangelism, it's a much simpler question to answer. Why should anyone evangelise? What role does evangelism play in the purposes of God? 
Well, why is there such a thing called evangelism? And what is the motivation of it? Well, last night we finished in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 10, and that's where we started in our reading just a little while ago. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, if you took verse 10 without any reference to the context of 2 Corinthians, just as a kind of verse and stuck it up on a big board like we have, don't look at the moment of the board at the back, which has John 3.16. John 3.16 means what John 3.16 means in context and out of context. It means exactly the same thing. This verse stuck on the board there would mean that we're all going to be judged on the basis of our good works. Well, that's not actually what the Bible is teaching. We're judged on the basis of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection for us. If, I'm, if, if that verse is just... So what is it meaning? You see, it's talking about being before the judgment seat of Christ. And in speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, it's talking of the rewards that are going to be received for the work that we have done since we've been Christians. Paul is not afraid of losing his salvation, but he wishes to be rewarded for the work he has done. The reward, of course, is the continuation of the work that he's done. He's not waiting to get a kind of crown with oil to slip on. He's not kind of wanting a trophy case with a china cabinet with all his trophies in. 1 Thessalonians 2 is one of the beautiful little passages you know, where it talks of you are our joy, you are our crown, you are our delight. When the last day comes and you see your Sunday school class standing transformed into the image of Christ, you think, the miracle has happened. What greater joy could there be? And how astonishing the next teacher must have been to have turned them around like they have been turned around. There is my joy, there is my hope, there is my... to see that my labour has not been in vain at all. But to stand there on the last day and look at everything I've done, just burnt up and useless, I'm still saved. I'm still there. Praise God and isn't it wonderful? But my life was a wasted life in Christ Jesus. For there is nothing to show for the 40 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever it may be, that I lived as one of God's people here on this earth. It's all just been burnt up because it was all useless. That would be the great disappointment of receiving what I've done in the body, whether good or evil. And so, what is your life been like? What will it be like? If you do the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord is never in vain. It will never come to nothing. It will stand for eternity. Therefore, he says in verse 11, and today we're looking very carefully at some of these conjunctions, as they're called, for those of you who don't know anything about grammar, because you were educated by the state education system. Uh, I don't know what happened in Tasmania, but in the 1980s in New South Wales, they got rid of grammar out of schools. They said this is a completely useless thing to teach. 
and uh, late 70s, early 80s, and the whole generation was raised without grammar, which meant by the end of the century, no one knew how to write, and very few people knew how to read. And so they reintroduced grammar into the school system of uh, New South Wales, only to discover that the teachers all lived in that generation, and so they had to teach the teachers grammar in order to get the teachers to be able to teach the children grammar. It was one of those, it seemed like a good idea at the time kind of political decisions. So if you're of that generation, therefore is very important because is very important therefore is the conclusion that you draw when you see what the, the word therefore you've always got to ask what it's there for it's there for the conclusion of what has just been given the judgment seat of Christ that I'm going to stand before one day and all my life is going to be seen for what it is given that therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others it's the fear of the Lord, of course, is the beginning of wisdom, but here it's the fear of the judge of all. That knowing this judgment that he is going to bring to me, therefore, my aim is to persuade. We persuade others. Now, under the fear of the Lord, the first point that I need to make for you is the problem of the inclusive we. Who is the we? who now seeks to persuade others. Now, we is one of our real problem words in, in the whole New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. Who does he mean when he talks about we? To try and help you understand it, I've created five, four little sentences with conclusions that come. Number one, we enjoyed the camp. Now, in that, who's the we? Well, we is me, that's always included, and some other people, possibly you. We enjoyed the camp. Right? Or it could be I go home and say to my children, they say, what was the camp like? And I say, we enjoyed the camp, and I just mean Helen and me. I'm not talking about you. You had a miserable time, but we enjoyed the camp. Right? So who is included in we? It's, it's a rubbery thing, isn't it? Often you decide who the we is by the rest of the sentence. So, we enjoyed the camp till you came. <laughs> now that's me... And that some other people enjoyed the camp, but it's not you. Right? You are not part of the we when we said we enjoyed the camp till you came. Or again, we enjoyed the camp till they came. Now, in that one, it's me and possibly others. I mean, it's got to be, or it's possibly you. So maybe we enjoyed the camp till they came. Or it's could you see who is the we when you have the we there? There's obviously some other people than the people you and I are talking about, and the you and I are part of the we. And there is them, whoever they are. Or we enjoyed the camp, didn't we? Now in that one, it's me and it's you. And it's possibly others as well when we said. Now, you see the problem with the word we? In a sentence. It's very hard to work out precisely who he's talking about. And that's a riddle problem all the way through our passage today. When Paul says we, he obviously means himself. But who else is he including in the we? Paul and Silvanus and other Christians who are travelling with him. Paul and the Corinthians to whom he's writing. Paul and all of humanity. You, you can't always be sure... Uh, language is not mathematics. You can't always be precise as to which we is included. And that does affect how we understand this passage. We'll 
tumble to it a little bit. Uh, look down, for example, in where is that verse? Um, uh, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, the we there can't be, well, it could be, but you don't read it as being Paul as opposed to the Corinthians. That's got to do with being the Christians, the we there. Well, who's the we in the previous verse? We are ambassadors for Christ. Is that Paul and the apostles? Or is that we Christians? This is the problem that comes in each verse. You have to kind of sit and think for a while as to who the we are and who they're not. And you mustn't be a Pharisee. Because the Pharisee is saying, I'm trying to avoid what it's saying here. So every time there's a we I don't like, that's Paul. And every time there's a we I do like, that's me. Of course, it's the wrong way of reading. It's the, the, the desire to avoid the word of God rather than to obey the word of God. So we have a problem in this passage. Back to verse 11. Knowing the fear of God, we aim to persuade men. And when you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that's exactly what Paul did. Uh, run back to me just quickly, Acts 17, Acts 17, where he's in Thessalonica. We'll just pick a couple of verses as we run through here and see the pattern of Paul's evangelism. Acts 17, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. But notice what he did. He reasoned with them. He explained to them. He set to prove to them these things. Or look down to verse 17 of the same chapter, 17. He's in Athens. And when he's in Athens, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day. So whoever happened to be there, he's reasoning with people. Or again, as you go across to chapter 18, chapter 18, when he's in Corinth, in chapter 18, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying. So he reasons, he argues, he persuades, he testifies to things. Or go across to chapter 19, verse 8, when he's in Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The evangelism of the apostle was not just declaring, but it was declaring in a way that sought to persuade, that would reason with people, would explain to people, would teach people, would help people understand, but he aimed to persuade people. So it's not just, I drop it. Jesus is king, see you later. Right? That, that's not what it's about. It's Jesus is king and you need to accept him as king. You need to understand the difference that makes. You need to see that by his death and resurrection, he's become the... I reason with people as I declare, as I proclaim, as I testify to the gospel. And why evangelise? Why is he doing this? Well, because of the fear of the Lord. Because he knows the reality of the resurrection life. He knows that... His aim is to please the Lord. He knows that the reality of life are the things unseen, not the things seen. I'm running back now into chapter 4, even back to chapter 3 at this point. 
uh, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. So we don't lose heart, verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affection is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why he goes on about being in the body and being away from the Lord or being with the Lord and away from the body. We live for being with the Lord. And when you're with the Lord, you're before the judgment seat of Christ and all your life becomes apparent. But that's the world we're living for. We, we understand that this world is sitting under the judge, the King, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And we as his servants will be called upon to give answer for our life and what we have done. We mustn't diminish the seriousness of the judgment of God and the judgment of Christ. We mustn't diminish the seriousness of our life and the worthwhileness of our life here and now. Because we believe in the grace of God and our salvation is secure and safe in the death of Jesus, we can tend to feel as if what we're doing now doesn't matter. This passage is saying, no, no, eternity is what matters, not now. But what happens now matters for eternity. That's why it's important. You see, we know the fear of the Lord and therefore we seek to persuade people. We persuade them of the truth of the Lord, but we also, and here it seems a strange twist, but this goes back to the situation of Corinth, we also want to give answer for ourselves. Not that we're commending ourselves to people, but you need to know how to answer people when they attack us. Rarely do people attack the Lord Jesus Christ first on. Generally, they attack his servants. You hate the message, shoot the messenger. And so over and over again, you'll have Christian leaders being attacked. And you need to be able to stand up for them because in standing up for them, you're standing up for Christ. It's only the leader who they shot down. And so you're going to say, no, no, I know that man. And he's not like that. Not because... It's important in a sense to defend him, but you're defending the leadership of Christ's people. Now, sometimes, of course, the leader is actually guilty and you say, yes, it's a sad, terrible thing that he's like that. But remember, very often, the slanderer and the accuser, the liar, is the devil. And he is putting out bad things about people. And we need to be able to stand with them and for them, because it's the attack actually coming on the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul was God's appointed apostle to the nations, and he was under terrible attack in Corinth. There were alternative apostles coming around who were leading people astray and who were saying negative things about the Apostle Paul. And so he wants the Corinthians not so much to defend him, but to know what he is really like, to remind them of what he's really like. And he's not a peddler of God's word. He doesn't twist the word of God to make it more effective. He doesn't do it for money. And so he says here, you see, but what we are known, what we are is known to God. God knows my heart and he will bring me to judgment in his own good time. But I hope it's also known to your conscience what, what we're really like. But we're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast on outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So often Christian people get befuddled, bemused, confused by impressiveness. And so the outward appearances of greatness seduce us into turning aside 
from the genuine greatness of the heart and the mind and the changed person. Uh, you, you see it in, uh, uh, in Christian circles. We see it, I, I know we have one, one or two American brothers here, but we see it particularly in America and in American culture. Um, whatever is successful is great and to be listened to. And so if this man has a church of 5,000 people, he's got to have something worth saying. If this man has a church of 50 people, we needn't bother bringing him out and talking to him or listening to anything he's got to say because he's not a success. And that is a fundamental error. The man of 50 might be speaking the truth and the man of 5,000 might have 5,000 because he speaks the lies of the devil, which is what the world wants to hear. Just because he's big, it's an irrelevant. Just because he's tall, handsome, because he's got terrific jokes. It's the heart you've got to look at. It's what actually makes this person tick that you've got to look at. And that's very hard to see um, through the internet. You really get very little judgment from there. But I've had all kinds of people spoken to me uh, as, as the great ones. But when you look at what makes them great, it's not necessarily the faithfulness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but effectiveness and successfulness. And that's not really the mark of greatness. It's a different thing that we need to see. And Paul is going to talk about how we see people in a moment or two, because that's what's in view here. He wants them to know his motives. And his motive for evangelism is the fear of the Lord. And one day he's going to stand before God, before the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of his life is going to be seen for what it is. So how is he going to spend his life? Persuading others of Christ. Now that's not saying anything about what you should do, isn't it? It's just saying everything about what you should do. <laughs> Doesn't mention you. Doesn't need to mention you unless you're a Pharisee. You know, I'm not there, so that's got nothing to do with me. Scrap that bit of the Bible, throw it away. But if that's what the Apostle's motivation is, and you too are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, because notice it says there, verse 18, verse 10, we must all appear. That, that, that's got to include even the Pharisee, hasn't it? We must all appear before the judgment seat. Then if he, out of the fear of the Lord, sees this is what he must do, then he gives a defence for his apostleship under the title, I've put it as the mad apostle. Because his life does look mad, running around preaching the gospel, getting shipwrecked, getting bashed up, getting beaten, getting rejected by people. It was a mad life. And he goes, hey, why is it like he is? And he's accused of madness. When he appears before Festus in Acts chapter 26, verse 24, and he talks about the resurrection, Festus, the Roman governor at the time, he says, Paul, you're mad. Your great learning has made you mad. He looked mad. What he said seemed mad to people. But he says, well, if I'm mad, that's between me and God. I'm mad for God's sake. That's the case. Don't you worry about it. God's looking after it. If I'm mad, then that's, that's between me and God. But if I'm not mad, if I'm sane in what I'm doing, then I'm sane for your sake. The reason why I do what I do is for you. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 5? Back in chapter 4, verse 5? It's a wonderful little passage. Little verse 4, verse 5. It's the marking one. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves, for Jesus' sake. 
If I'm sane, I'm doing it for you. That's, that's the person, they're the people I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. And then he explains another motivation as to why he does it for them. Verse 14, back in chapter 5, verse 14. For, now the English word for is a fudge word. Because the word for can mean two different things. For can mean in the future or for can mean in the past. When it means in the future, I'm doing it in order to something or other. I'm doing it for, uh, for the sake of having lunch early today. Right? When it means for in the past, it's because. And the word actually here in the Greek is because. That's, that's the nature of this word, it's because. Why am I doing this? Because the love of Christ controls us. Why? It's the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge, and it's the love of Christ, the Saviour, that leads me to do this. It's not, not my love for Christ, this is Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us controls us. And the word here is a, it's an unusual word, it means constrains, hedges us in, holds us in, in constraints so that we, we can almost do no other than. It's the love of Christ which constrains us, it surrounds me so that I can do it, controls me. This love of Christ constrains me. How? Well, because we've concluded uh, we've judged, we, we've, we've thought out, reasoned and come to the sensible conclusion because we've concluded something about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, how do you know the love of Christ? Well, it's in the Gospel. And it's not that you feel the warm fuzz. You may feel the warm fuzz. And if you do, I'm very glad for you. But don't impose it upon me. The, the, the Bible doesn't talk of you getting a warm fuzz every time Jesus' name comes out. It, it just, that's not how you feel the love of Christ. The love of Christ is something you conclude. It's been told to you, you think about it, and you understand what his love is. Now, the more you ponder it, the more your emotions may be moved about it. But if you someday don't have an emotion, it doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. Uh, the people whose love is always determined by their emotions, well, Jesus waxes hot and hot and cold, doesn't he? One day I feel loved, next day I don't feel loved. Maybe he loved me one day, maybe he doesn't love me the next day. Rubbish. The love of Christ is a conclusion I draw from the gospel message. That for what is this conclusion? How? How is it? You see it there? Again, you've got to get the word because. We've concluded this. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, finish the verse, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. He, he, he died not when I was a good person, righteous person, moral person or his person. He died for me while I was still a sinner. Dead in my sins and trespasses, under the wrath of God, Christ died for me. And in his death for me, I died. When he died, he didn't die his death, he died my death. And so I am dead in his death. 
See what he's saying? For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. I was born dead in my sins and trespasses, and when the Lord Jesus Christ died, which is a couple of thousand years before I was born, I know I'm old but not old, when the Lord Jesus Christ died, I died my death. I was dead kind of twice before I got started, in a sense. That Christ died so that I have died to my sins and trespasses. Already, it's an extraordinary little phrase here. But then I can understand, I conclude the very nature of, of his love. For he died for me, my death. That's what has taken place. And that being the case, I have died and therefore the appropriate and right response for the gospel is to die. How do you become a Christian? Very simple. Drop dead. That's how you become a Christian. That's roughly what Jesus said in the Australian vernacular, of course. If he was an Aussie, that's what he would have said, kind of thing. What would Jesus say? It's a new kind of thing. <laughs> For Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. How do you save your life? Lose your life for his sake and the gospel. How do you lose your life? You deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him. To deny yourself is to say no to self. You know, you deny yourself an ice cream means you say, you say no to an ice cream. Don't know what day I've ever done that. But you say no, right? That's what the, but I don't deny myself something else. I deny myself. I deny myself myself. I'm saying no to self. I'm putting self to death on the cross that Jesus died. He died for me, so I'm dead. What's the message I should do now? Well, I should drop dead, shouldn't I? Seeing that my death has already happened. So now I get rid of that. That old self is dead. In our old prayer book of the 16th century, it, it talks about the old man. I'm talking about my old self. And... Uh, for better or for worse, we used to do baptisms of all kinds of people who weren't regular Bible readers. And in the baptism service, it talks about uh, the baby and the little baby. May he utterly crucify the old man. And you can see people looking at the father of the baby and wondering what kind of weird Freudian view of life that you have, that you're going to crucify the old man. But that is the nature of becoming a Christian, is to crucify the old man. Is your old life is gone. You've dropped dead because your death has been paid for already. That life that was your natural life is an over-finished life. That's why the Bible goes on to talk about you must be born again. Because it's not that we become Christians by dropping dead and that's it. So become a Christian and that's the end of your existence. It's become a Christian in order that you may be born again. It's the regeneration that takes place. More of that in a second. So we've died in the death of Jesus, both the fact that he died for us and we've accepted his death by dying to him. So Philip Jensen is doubly dead. That, that's, he doesn't exist anymore, he's dead. But the, 
key to that, of course, lies in the love of Christ. See, why did Christ die my death for me? Well, because he loved me. That's why. I mean, you, you see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where you can see how much he really loved us. For there he prays to his Father that if it be possible, take this cup from me. Let this hour pass by me. Jesus didn't want to die. That's because Jesus knew what death meant. You see, when Socrates comes to the end of his life, he says, well, I don't know whether to die or not. And his disciples around about him are saying, oh, no, don't die, don't die. And he says, you're not mourning for me because when I die, I'm likely to be better off than I am. So they say, you're right, we'll die with you. And he's saying, no, no. And then he has a little argument about suicide. It's one of the first arguments against suicide in Western literature because he persuades his disciples not to suicide while he has to die drinking the hemlock. And then he kind of concludes, well, here we go. You go home, I go to another place. Which is better? I don't know. But there's no sense in Socrates that in his death he's going to face the judgment of God. There's no perception that in his death he's going to be under the wrath of God for his life. That's not there. Jesus knows what death means. Death is the penalty for sin. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that on the cross he's going to bear the wrath of God. Jesus knows that moment that lies ahead of him where the psalmist spoke of, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? I mean, you know the meaning of the word God forsaken. You know, you look out in the desert and you say, that's a God forsaken place. Jesus is going to be God forsaken. He knows that the wrath of God is going to be visited upon him. Or as it puts it there at the end of, verse, uh, the, end of the chapter, verse 21, for our sake, he who knew no sin is to be made sin. He knew that God was taking the sin of the world and placing it upon him to such an extent that he who was sinless was going to become sin. For you and me, a little bit more sin, what's the difference? But for someone who's never had sin, it's massive difference. I get a bit more dirt under my fingernails, it's a nothing. I get a bit of dirt in my eye, it's a massive irritation. My eye is totally intolerant of dirt. My fingernails have lived in it. You and I like fingernails. Jesus is like a lie. He had never known sin. And now was to have all sin placed on him. He shrinks from it. He doesn't want it. He prays, take it from me. Let this hour pass. Take the cup away. If there is any other way, let it happen some other way. But of course, there is no other way. And so he prays that wonderful prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. There is the love of Jesus. And as I understand, as I conclude, as I judge, as I grasp the love of Jesus for me, then I understand I'm dead. And I wish to have nothing more to do with my old self. I'll read you the verse that's up at the back. And I want you to tell me, what is the most important word in the verse? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now you think out which is the most important word in that verse. Hands up those who think it's God. 
Hands up those who think it's so. Hands up those who think it's loved. Hands up those who think it's the. Hands up those who think it's world. Uh, gave. Hands up those who've got hands. <laughs> One. Some. Believes. Perish. Most of you have wished out, haven't you? What is the most important word? It's a lovely verse, isn't it? You have heard it before, haven't you? (laughs) It's it's the word so. The verse actually hangs on the word so. God so loved loved this world that he gave you that. The logic of the verse actually hangs on the little word so. So great was the love of God. In such fashion did God love that he gave his one and only son. That is how much God loved this world. When we understand, when we conclude, when we judge the love of Christ, we find it constraining. We cannot help but do what the love of Christ has done for us. And so God so loved the world that we see that one died for all, so therefore all died. And the conclusion from that flows on in the rest of the verse. So that One died for all. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him. That is the constraining love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our new birth is that we will now live unlike the way we used to live and unlike the way the rest of the world lives. Not for self, but for Christ. Now again, you can come back to chapter 4, verse 5, isn't it? We don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We now live for the Lord Jesus Christ, do we? For if we don't, what makes us think we've been born again? For the reason we've been born again was to no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Who do we live for? Uh, When you're a young mother, young father, you see how much you live for your children, don't you? That's why our present community doesn't want to have children. Because they don't want to put their lives out for others. Especially the atheists. The women with the lowest rate of childbirth in Australia are university graduates who are atheists and live in Melbourne. I don't know why Melbourne, I haven't understood that, but then again as a Sydney cider, I don't understand Melbourne anyway, do I? And anything that's negative about Melbourne, I will remember. So I remember this statistic. But it's atheists who don't like to have children. If you go into the child-free zone on uh, on your uh, web, there is a child-free zone, and look at the testimonies of the people that are there, every one of them is an atheist. Atheists don't want to have children. Because they would 
cease to live their life for themselves and have to live their life for somebody else. But ultimately, we Christians, we mustn't live our lives for our children. That was the mistake of the people who came back from the Second World War. That's why the baby boomers are such arrogant people. Because their parents taught them to be arrogant because their parents lived their life for them. And they said, you are the most important people in the universe. But Christians know the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important. I don't live my life for my children. I live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I live for him, I live for them. We preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's not just your servants, because Jesus is our Lord. We're the servants of him. So we preach your servants for Jesus' sake. Because we ultimately now are to live for him who died for us and was raised again. And it's his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. And therefore, from now on, life is different. Verse 16. From now on, we, not just the apostle I take it here, we regard, we now know, we now think of people differently. No way do we look at people the way we used to in the flesh, the way the world looks at people. We now see people as very different, as those who are new creatures in Christ Jesus in the height of the terrible times of South Africa. Uh, Bishop uh, uh, William Bradley came out and... It wasn't William Bradley, Bishop Bradley, Stephen Bradley, came to Australia, and a lovely old uh, Sydney missionary who had spent all his life in South Africa. And uh, uh, terrible times were happening and, and people were very interested to find out his view of South Africa, being an Australian who had lived there for 40, 50 years. And uh, Stephen Bradley, I remember him saying at a public meeting, he said, well, the trouble with South Africa is it's just a divided nation. There are, there are two groups of people in South Africa, and as long as there are these two people in South Africa warring against each other, South Africa will never be at peace. And everyone's nodding their heads and agreeing or whatever. And he said, that is the problem. He says, there are those people who have Christ, and there are those people who have not got Christ. <laughs> Nobody in the journalistic world of the world today thinks in those terms. But if you're in Christ Jesus, that is the reality. There are those who have Christ and there are those who have not had Christ. And that is the great tragedy. But we now see people differently. We don't look at whether they're tall, dark, handsome, whether they're wealthy, whether they're beautiful, whether they're powerful, whether they're athletic. They're the kinds of things the world looks at. We don't look at people like that. We don't judge by externals. We're not impressed by that, by the things the world is impressed by. We don't, we now, the life we now live, which is the fourth heading I've come to, the life we now live is regards people not according to the flesh. That's not how we do it, but as a new creation from God. And so really all that matters ultimately is, has this been person been born again? Are they of the new creation have they been touched by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the most important single thing about another person. I've done a lot of work lately, or we've done some work lately amongst the alcoholics. And at AA, people get up and give their testimony. And they say, uh, hello, my name's Philip, I'm an alcoholic. And then the crowd all says, hello, Philip. And then they tell about their life in alcoholism. And then they tell how they went to AA and got sober. 
Uh, interestingly, if you listen to their testimonies, the 10 minutes they tell you about their life in alcoholism is screamingly funny and very enjoyable. And then the two minutes in which they tell you about their conversion and their, their sobriety is pain, agony, toil and trouble every day of their life. And so it's a fairly negative meeting, I find, although screamingly funny when they're describing their alcoholism, which is really a bit perverse um, when you think about it. But their identity is, I'm an alcoholic. Now we're running a Christian group called Overcomers Outreach and I'm trying to get them to stop saying, I'm an alcoholic. You've got to say, I'm a Christian who used to abuse alcohol, but I'm a Christian. That's my identity. Uh, I'm a Christian. And what is your identity? I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a dentist. I'm a no, I'm a Christian. I'm a son of God. That is who I am. That is my identity, my self-perception. And that is how I need to see people. Because what we have now is the ministry of reconciliation. That is the ministry of evangelism. It's to bring about reconciliation, uh, to make friendships, to, to make compatible again. But the ministry of reconciliation is the ministry of God. Because the reconciliation is with God. There will be reconciliation between people as well, Jew and Gentile together. But it's only based and premised on being united again to God. That is the reconciliation. And that's, God has done his part in the reconciliation. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But that work of Jesus Christ in reconciling the world to God, that work of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that work is carried out through evangelism. For we now are the messengers of reconciliation, he says. We are the ones who are bringing the reconciliation that Christ has won into effect. God is making his appeal through us. Come back with me to Luke 24 very quickly. Luke 24. And you can see this is, this is the plan. This is the program of God that we are engaging in. Luke 24. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The Old Testament scriptures said what must happen. What must happen? Jesus must die and rise again and... The gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. Jesus dying and rising again and never being mentioned again would not bring the reconciliation of the world. There is another part of the program. As an essentially part of the program, as the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's God's program for the salvation of mankind that he reconciles the world to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is proclaimed to the ends of the earth as certainly and as essentially and as necessary the death of Jesus, so is world evangelism. It's just part of the program. So God is making his appeal through us. The appeal is be reconciled to God. 
I may say my translation, and I think yours as well, is wrong in verse 29, um, where it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The word you is not there in the text. Um, in, has everyone's Bible got that? Anyone got a Bible that hasn't got the word you there? We implore you, we beseech you, we exhort you. The you is not there in the Greek. He's not saying, he's not writing to them saying, please be reconciled to God. He's writing to Christians, they are reconciled to God. What he's writing to them is saying, our message is, be reconciled to God. That's the message we have. And I take it the we here is the Corinthians as much as it is the Apostle. It's the, it's the message of Christianity. To beseech people to be reconciled to God. God has died that you be reconciled to him, be reconciled to God. For, as he spells it out then, God has done all this in verse 21. See what God has done. For our sake, who's the our there but Christians? Our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not the apostles he's talking about, he's talking about every Christian at this point. As I take it, is that's for the message. That is, while verses 11 to 16, 15 is very much about Paul as opposed to the Corinthians, verse 16, or well, the change happens there around verse 14, 15, he's really talking about Christians. And what he's saying here in verse 6, 1 is, working with God, then... We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says in a favourable time. This is the favourable time. And so we are now working with God. So don't receive the gospel of grace and do nothing. Receive the gospel of grace that you may work with God in God's grand program, the salvation of mankind. He, he hasn't saved you, reconciled you, so that you'll do nothing. He's reconciled you and saved you so that you will join in his work. And his work is not painting the wall. His work is bringing the message of reconciliation to the world. The message of his death and resurrection for us. So we don't receive the grace of God for nothing. We're not going to stand before Christ with nothing to show for the Christian life that we've lived. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the moment previous history before the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't, but from the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's open season for reconciliation. So now is the moment for the change in the kingdom of God in this world. So let me return to why evangelize. Because this is the day of salvation, because Christ's actions have paid the price for the sin, and because in his death he took our sin upon himself and in his resurrection brought new life and the kingdom of God. Because of Christ's overwhelming love for us. Therefore, because we have been saved in order to bring others to salvation as well, that we serve him by serving others. Because of our fear of the Lord, for we will appear, all of us, one day and give answer for how we've lived our lives as Christians. Therefore, we work with God in his great program of reconciliation, taking the message to the ends of the earth. 
When you understand the why of evangelize, do you see how stupid it is to ask the question of who? It's, it's a silly question, ultimately. The only person who asks the question who must do it is the person who doesn't want to do it. But when you understand the fear of the Lord, when you understand the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you know your Lord, when you know your Saviour, when you understand the plans of God for the reconciliation of mankind, when you understand the importance of evangelism in those plans, when you understand what is taking place, well, what else could you do but tell people of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I may say, the Pharisee in his legalism always hates God. The Christian, under the Spirit of God, rejoices in God. For what is the way to joy? The way to joy is very simple. It's the way you spell it. If you're dyslexic, you've got a problem. If you're not dyslexic, you'll spell it J-O-Y, won't you? Even I can manage that, and I failed many a spelling test. And it's very simple. Jesus, others, yourself. That's the way to joy. Others, yourself, Jesus, doesn't work. Oij, just doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't give you joy. Right? Any alteration in the order of the letters, and you don't have joy. But Jesus leads you to serve others. For that is your right place for yourself. You, he died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and rose again. Okay, I'm living for him. What does he want? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Guess what he wants? He wants to save sinners. I'm going to live for him. I've got to live for others because that's the way to live for him. And in what way do I live for others? By imploring them to be reconciled to God. Because if they're not reconciled to God, they have nothing. All their wealth, pomp, splendor, intelligence, well, they've got nothing if they're not in Christ Jesus. Because I now look at people from the viewpoint of the new creation. They're either dead in their sins and trespasses or made alive in Christ Jesus. Do I want my neighbours, my friends, my family to be dead in their sins and trespasses? What kind of uncouth, unloving person am I? Of course. See, when you understand the why of evangelism, you evangelise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his obedience to you. We thank you that you so loved the world that you made him who knew no sin to become sin so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you that he so loved us and so loved you that he would say not my will, but your will be done. We thank you that even while we were still sinners, you loved us. We thank you that he loved us and offered up his life as a fragrant offering for us. 
Help us, Father, to so understand the love of the Lord Jesus, to so conclude from his death, his love for us, that we too may be constrained, we too may be hedged in and compelled to live for him who died for us and rose again, and in living for him might become the slaves of others for his sake, that we would not live for ourselves, but for others and their salvation, and so become more and more like the Lord Jesus, that we would put our hopes and our aspirations, our dreams and our expectations, not on the things that can be seen of this earth, but of the unseen things, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, that having been put to death with him, and having been raised with him, we would set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That we would not put our minds and our hopes and our loves on the things of this earth, but on the things that are above, knowing that our life is hid in Christ Jesus, and that when he returns, our life will appear and we will be like him, sharing in his glory, rewarded from him. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, for we have used this life that you have given to us to serve our Lord and to serve others. So please, Father, move us by your Spirit to rightly understand our Lord and his love so that we might rightly understand other people and their need of the Saviour, and that we might rightly understand ourselves as your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.